do we equip our families with a biblical worldview? How do we prepare the next generation for life? How do I grow in my walk with the Lord and in my marriage? If you wrestle with these questions, you are in the right place to find answers. Welcome to the Entrusting the Faith podcast. Welcome to the Entrusting the Faith podcast. I'm your host, Eric Rutherford. And I have a treat for you today because I have with me Mark Phillips. He is the founder of Axis Ministries, uh, which is in West Africa. And he's been serving as a missionary in West Africa for 16 years. Uh, But even more than uh, being a missionary, he is a husband. He is a father of four. Most of all, he is a Christ follower. Two quick items before we get to our interview. First, if you go to our website at entrustingthefaith.com. Scroll down to the bottom, sign up for our weekly emails so you know who is coming up on the podcast for the week and who you may have missed the previous week. Uh, You'll also get a free resource when you do, and you can find all our other podcasts on our website while you're there. Feel free to scroll through them, find other interviews uh, to really help you along the way. Uh, Second, this episode is just brought to you by my book, Leading While at Home, How Husbands and Fathers Can Biblically Lead Their Families. So if you've ever thought, man, I want to be a godly husband or father, I don't know where to start, or you've heard that you need to do something to equip your family, but you just don't know where to begin, well, if this is you or, you know, anybody you know, Leading While at Home will show you how you can love Jesus Christ, love and serve your wife and children, and take responsibility for discipling your family. You'll be encouraged and given action steps that you can apply so that you're moving forward. Okay, now let's jump into today's episode. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here. Hey, it is my pleasure. Now, for everybody listening, I, my wife and I have had the opportunity to to be on, on their prayer list and, and on their communications list now for a bunch of years. And so we have just seen the Lord working through their ministry and doing a great work in West Africa. And so it is, that was one of the reasons he, he's here in the States for a while. And so I wanted to get him on the show. So um, just excited for him to be here. And so before we get into Axis Ministries and the work that the Lord is doing in West Africa, would you tell us a little bit about your background and what sort of led you to starting Axis Ministries? Yeah, so even our calling to the field was was a bit shocking. Um, I joke with people, you know, Lottie Moon was not my first crush. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I just I just always assumed that that people who ended up in the bush of West Africa must have had some sort of supernatural experience with their their cat's heads spinning around and quoting Acts one eight to them or some you know unbelievable experience. I was like, oh, I guess that's how you end up there. And so we obviously didn't have that experience. We were here in South Central Kentucky. I was serving on staff at a local church, great church that I thought I would be at forever. I really enjoyed the ministry. It was fruitful. And just through the slow and ordinary means of of reading the word and becoming more aware of of global lostness, uh, my wife and I just began to to kind of flip the question. We'd assumed we weren't called. We said, what if we just assume we we are called? Um, And so we began taking one step at a time. Um, and that led us to the field. Um, we was, we didn't have a spot we were destined to go to in a sense of where we wanted to go. We just wanted to go where the gospel had not gone. Um, and so that led us to Niger, West Africa. It's funny that the job that we actually answered was for Timbuktu, um, which was fun to tell people because they'd be like, no, really, where are you going? <laughs> like, no, seriously, it's a place. 
Uh, but in, in God's providence, we were in the bush of Niger for a term as church planters among an unreached people group. Um, and then that we did that for four years. Then we moved to the capital city where we became team leaders for that same people group. Um, and then we did that for seven years. And then we uh, became more of a regional leader. And we're looking at 14 countries in West and Central Africa and developing strategies and connections. And, you know, I was telling somebody, there's a great quote by the Puritan, John Flavel. He says, you know, God's providence is like a Hebrew word. You can only read it backwards. Um, and so we didn't yes. see these steps in the, in the midst of it. But looking back now, we see how God has prepared us all along the way for access, which is really the culmination of these 16 years of ministry from that church planner in the bush um, to being a team lead to developing an international network, all of that has really led us to this point where we're now going forward with Access Ministries. I love that. The way you talked about you were not, it, it wasn't some miraculous event that led <laughs> you there, um, but it was just that aware of global lostness, that that sort of growing awareness as you're in, uh, as you're in the scriptures that moved you there. And then sort of that same question of why why not go, right? What's right. what what yep. would keep us from going? And I think that's a great perspective to have that sometimes I think is missed. You know, it's like, well, what if we think about going first and then decide not to later or find out? So I love yeah. I love that. What is Access Ministry? So as you're you're getting ready to roll, because this is something you're you've you've established, getting ready to roll out. What what is it? Kind of what is the the purpose and, and goal behind it? Right. So Axis, again, it's while it's a new name and, and a new ministry going forward, it is really the culmination of, like I said, our 16 years there. So it's it's local church based um, and there's four quadrants of ministry, four buckets, if you want to picture that, of build up, send out, raise up, reach out. Um, all of those ministries flow out of our context um, and looking at the situation of Niger and even Francophone Africa, French-speaking Africa, um, looking at where the gaps are. Um, we talk about our ministry being between the bookends of lostness. And so on one hand, you have unreached people groups in really difficult places to get to where it's just, just geographically getting there is hard. Um, they're hard peoples because of their Islam or whatever it is, it makes them unreached. So you have that on one extreme and on the other extreme, you have a prosperity gospel that has just swept through large parts of West and, and all over the continent, actually, of, of Africa. And so our ministry axis, we find ourselves between those two bookends. And we really believe that the best way to go about that is through the local church. We think that that is God's chosen instrument um, for this task. He's not entrusted it to individuals, but to his church. And so through our local church that we've planted in the capital, we see these four buckets of ministry of, of building up the local church through biblical resources and practical training um, of sending out workers. It's just it's sad, but it's the reality that, that people like myself will not be the tip of the spear anymore. Um, we've not been able to leave the capital for two years because of security. Um, and so our plea is to the more reached parts of Africa to send your workers, to send your young men and women to us um, so that they can go out. So that sending out aspect. And then 75% of Niger, where we live, is under the age of 25. And so how do we wow. raise up this next generation just in a short period of history? A lot could change um, with some intentional ministry effort. And then reaching out 
being one of the poorest places on the planet, um, there's just lots of needs. And so how do we do that in a, in a helpful way um, that advances the gospel? So those, those four quadrants, and there's, there's kind of ministries underneath each of those, but that's really what AXIS is all about. AXIS is just for us a reference point that we can plot where we're at, where we're going, where are the needs, um, and then we fill that out through these four quadrants. I love that. I love that description of between the bookends of lostness, that between unreached people groups and the prosperity gospel. Um, how how it is one of those sort of stronger or more influential than the other? So is it like, are you, is it, or are they sort of equal parts? It just depends on which community you're in. Yeah, they're they're equal, equally challenging. Um, one group has been unfortunately inoculated sometimes to the gospel, um, mm. but the sad reality is you have people sitting in church pews Sunday after Sunday who are just as lost as that guy in the middle of the bush of Niger or the jungles of DRC. Um, they they don't have any more access to a true gospel um, than that person sitting in the pew hearing a non-biblical gospel being presented um, week after week. So they, they each present different challenges, um, but uh, and they manifest themselves sometimes overlapping ways. So like Niamey, where we live, the capital, there's not many churches, but even the few that are there, we see these streams running in. Oftentimes that's because it's just all they have access to. You know, we, we try to be charitable in one sense. Um, a lot of times, it's not disobedience. It's, it's ignorance. There's just, they've never been exposed to, to good resources, sound doctrine. Um, and so one of our main ministries, we have a printing press in Niamey, which sounds bizarre to be printing books in one of the poorest and least literate places on the planet, but it's actually been a, a really successful ministry um, and provided incredible resources. We can get sound doctrine into the hand of church leaders and pastors um, right there at an affordable price point. And so, you know, the Reformation, they say it happened through the pulpit and through the printing press. And so that's where, again, that between those two worlds, we feel like if, if we can help churches get more healthy, that's going to actually affect that other extreme of the unreached peoples as they're sent out. Oh, that makes sense. And, and with that, being able to print materials for, um, for people in that context, is it only French? Is it multiple languages? What's How are you handling that? Because uh, I don't even know how many languages, written dialects you are encountering right. on a, a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. I don't know what that reach is in that area. What, what What's that look like? Yes. Yeah, so French would be our largest um, area regionally. So we're, we're able to send books, you know, through the bus system. I can print a book today and have it in five different countries tomorrow. Um, and so the bus system makes it very easy to send resources. So French would be the common language that we're trying to reach. But then now we're looking at that second tier of Hausa, of Grumanchi, um, of even Zarma, the language we speak mostly in Niger. Um, Hausa, for instance, is the 11th largest language spoken in the world. You can read BBC um, daily in Hausa. And yet is one of the largest people groups is unreached. Boko Haram, the, the terrorist group, that is a Hausa word. Um, they consider themselves the horse of Islam, they call themselves. And so getting resources into the Hausa language is kind of our target right now. Um, we've just signed some contracts with Crossway. We're going to be doing the, the Building Healthy Church series that Nine March put out in Hausa. 
Um, and so we're really excited about going to those second and third tier languages. But right now, like you said, French is the predominant language we're printing in um, for sure. Wow, that that is mind blowing to think that Hausa is the 11th largest language in the world and it is a, a, an unreached people group. That, yeah, there's that, more Hausa speakers than German speakers. It's crazy. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh my word. I had no idea. That is that is mind blowing. And it sounds like then you really are even with faithful believers, a lot of it is just that equipping training aspect that they're just lacking. It's just where we in the West, in some cases, I think we just have way too many resources or way too many resources that aren't all that good. They right. just have none. Yeah. I mean, you just think about your listeners, even the access to the resources they have. They can order on Amazon. They can go to bookstores if those still exist here, I think. Um, <laughs> having, you know, radio stations, people like yourself, most of the world, especially in, in the unreached parts of the world, just don't even have access. Even if they wanted those things, they have no way um, to get those in their language. And so, yeah, creating resources, developing training, and really nurturing a network, an international network of like-minded church leaders and pastors is, is our goal with access. Now, is, are you able, is that, is that sort of staying within the same people groups? Does that cross sort of, um, we'll call it national country boundaries and even people group boundaries? Are you able to, do you see inner workings there? How's that look? No, through, through our network and places that we can reach through, like I said, bus stations um, and just where we have key contacts in place. We're able to impact just about half the population of the content, which is crazy wow. because we have Nigeria um, right next to us, which is one fifth of the population of Sub-Saharan Africa alone, um, wow. but then some of the other coastal countries. So, yeah, it's it's crossing all kinds of borders, geographical, linguistic. Um, yeah, it, it's a far reach for sure. Wow. Praise the Lord. That That is so, um, man, that's awesome. That is just good good news. And so it sounds like tremendous need for the gospel uh, in Niger, in West Africa. What does, what does that look like, that need? Is it there is, you know, towns where for miles and miles there is no gospel presence? When people hear unreached, what does Living in Tennessee, the unreached is really foreign to people living in Tennessee because you have to drive by, you know, churches to get to your church. So what, what right. can, can you just sort of give a, a picture of what that looks like? Right. And it, it's not helpful to try to draw a distinction with lostness. So a lost person there in Tennessee is, is just as lost as someone in the middle of the bush of Niger. The difference and where the unreached part comes in would be in terms of access. And so that person in Tennessee has you and hundreds and thousands of other people just like you within reach that they're interacting with daily, um, whether they know it or not. They have radio stations they can turn on. They have books they could stumble across, even in a place like Walmart, maybe. And so there's access to the gospel, whether they receive that or not, um, is obviously in the Lord's hand. 
in Niger and all across Sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa in particular, you have entire groups of people who will never meet a Christian, who will never drive past a church, who will never have an opportunity to, to see a gospel tract or book. Um, and so the difference is about access. And so, yeah, unreached people groups would be those groups that have little to no access to the gospel. Wow. That is heartbreaking. Um, yeah, that's just heartbreaking. I, I don't know what other word for it. Now, are you, is it predominantly uh, Muslim in this area in West Africa? And what does, what does Islam look like there? Because it, it, does it look different depending on where you are in the world? How does that work out? Yes. Yeah, so we live in the part of Africa where you have a almost completely Muslim North running sometimes violently into an almost completely Christian South. Um, and both of those should be air quoted um, Christian and Muslim, but North Africa is almost 100% Muslim. And then once you get about halfway through those coastal countries of Nigeria, Benin, Togo, it switches almost instantly um, to Christian and so Niger is right in the, in the middle of that. So yes, we would be considered 94% Islamic. Um, the rest of that would be uh, animistic. Now, our brand of Islam is what's called folk Islam, which means while you look very Muslim on the exterior, so Ramadan just finished, all of our friends would have been fasting through Ramadan. They're praying five times a day. They're dressed. Their speech looks very Islamic. If you poke through that veneer just a little bit, peel back one layer, you'll see a more animistic faith still there. So when you get sick, you don't go to the mosque, you go to the witch doctor. Um, when your child has some sort of issue, you don't read the Quran or pray to Allah. Um, you again, try to seek out some sort of medicine man who's going to be able to help them. And so they've syncretized Islam and um, their animistic faith, and they don't see it as a contradiction. Um, at all. And so that makes it extra challenging for the gospel work. There almost has to be two conversions. So someone will come out of Islam into Christianity, but you still have to do the deep discipleship work on their heart to root out those animistic, that animistic faith. Does that make sense? It, it does. So it's like they are, we'll say culturally Islam, like they're, they're yeah, exactly. Kind of like, kind of like we deal with cult, that cultural Christian thing where it looks <laughs> right. You, you got it where you got the, um, you dress right, you look right, you say the right things, but there's yeah. uh, underneath it's, it's a whole different, uh, whole different thing. Exactly. Um, now what's it, you talk about sort of almost needing, you know, it's, it's almost like a two-step process just because, of dealing with that, uh, however many generations of that animistic um, right. religion, what makes it so hard for a Muslim in this context to, to profess faith in Christ? Because um, I think that's something I think we in the West don't quite understand. Right. I mean, I remember when we first moved to the village, you know, we're think we're the, we're going to be the first people to, to share the gospel in this area. And I remember thinking, wow, when, when people who've heard nothing but, but law and condemnation with no hope, you know, we're going to present grace and assurance, and we're just going to see floods of people come to Christ with that. And we were met with the, the reality that 
no, even after hearing the gospel, so many stayed in their Islamic faith. Um, there's lots of factors for that. Um, there's obviously spiritual battles happening there. But beyond that, the community is king in the part of Africa we live. You know, we as Americans, we think very individualistic. What's best for you? What's best for me? Whereas in Africa, especially West Africa, it's what's best for us. And so you need the community for survival. Um, I know there's going to come a day this week that I don't have rights. I need to know that my neighbor is going to help me and vice versa. They're going to have to come to me. And so to come to Christ means you get pushed out of that community. Um, and it can be a death sentence of sorts. But when you see the church formed, and that's what's been so beautiful, Eric, is to see a new community formed. Um, I'll tell a quick story. We had a, a husband and wife who both confessed Christ. And one of the threats that they'll make in Niger to someone who's considering following Christ, they'll say, if you die, nobody's going to bury you, which doesn't seem like much of a threat maybe to you and I, but it's huge in Niger. Um, you need to know that they're going to put you in the ground and say one final prayer and, and hopefully send you on your way to paradise. And so this is a big threat they make. They've made to Ibrahim and his wife, Hure, um, who, despite those threats, confessed Christ and were steadfast in their faith. But then Hure passed away. And Eric, it was like the village had the sermon illustration they've been waiting for. And so they, they gather a crowd up at Ibrahim's house and they begin to taunt him and mock him. And they say, don't you see? Like, this is exactly what we said would happen. Nobody's here to help you. Your wife's like a donkey. She's like a dog. She just needs to rot on the ground. Nobody's going to bury her. Um, and, and Ibrahim, it was a huge moment for him. But, but he stood up to these guys, the most powerful men in his village. And he said, if I have to bury her by myself, I will. But there's no way I'm turning my back on Christ. It was an amazing moment for him. But, but even more amazing there was others in the crowd that day who seeing Ibrahim's boldness, they in their hearts had confessed Christ. They had not made that public yet because they were afraid, but seeing his boldness, they began to gather around him and together they went and they buried Hure. And it was just this amazing picture of here's some men, this small group that they've lost one community for sure. They've been kicked out and rejected, but they found a new one. And this is a better one. And it's one that's going to last for eternity. And so that's what makes church planning. One of the things that makes church planning so sweet in our context is because it's not just this thing I go to on Sunday or a part of my life. It really becomes my new community. And that's how it's supposed to be, right? It is. No, and I think that's that's an incredible picture of, of community. And so, yeah, would you elaborate a little more on, on just that local church aspect? Because I think, I think in the West, in, in the Southeast U.S., we, we get that confused, right? We, we start thinking buildings and a place and community sort of, we, with a dusting of community. <laughs> You know, but yeah. but it it's it's that but that's not what church is. I'd love to to hear you you share a little more on that. Yeah, com community's life um, for sure, and, and you have to have community to survive in a place like Niger. Um, so it, it does lots of things for us. Um, one, we don't have much nominal Christianity, which is a great thing. Um, you you can't just kind of sit and face the kind of persecution you'll face, the kind of rejection you'll face if it's not genuine. Um, so it kind of roots that out from the get-go. Um, but it also forces you to be simple 
and to draw from the scriptures. I remember in seminary, an activity we had to do, it was called the irreducible ecclesiological minimum. (laughs) And just a really (laughs) complicated way of saying, if you strip everything down, what do you have to have to have a church? You know, it was this Mm -hmm. exercise. And I remember how hard that was. It it was really challenging to think because I had an American church context and all the things that we've kind of added to, not that they're bad or unbiblical, but they weren't necessary to have a church. When in a place like Niger, when you're starting the the first, you're planning the first church with the first believers, it, there's a sweetness that comes from the simplicity uh, of just going back to the scriptures and seeing um, what is the church? What does the church do? Um, what is the church supposed to look like? And one thing in Niger that makes the church shine, unlike anything else, is the coming together of people from different ethnicities. Um, you know, slavery and lots of bad history is not just ancient history for most of our people groups. There's, there's modern day slavery happening, even in this within same people groups um, in Niger. There's just two people, two or three people groups that you never see them together. They, they never come together because one looks at the other as a lower caste. And in the church, you have those brothers and sisters sitting beside each other, calling themselves brothers, calling themselves sisters around a common confession and a common table and it's something that people in Niger have never seen. And it just makes the, shir- the church shine even brighter um, as that light and city on a hill. Wow. Um, just that, that witness to breaking through all of what they consider the uh, unbreakable norms yeah. of culture. Yep. Wow. Now, with... You talk about there, there are no nominal Christians, right? Because there's because of what what the cost is. What does what's persecution look like? Because depending on where you're at in the world, persecution has different. Right. It looks differently. What's that look like there? Or yeah, what do so they, I guess what do they typically? What, what can you expect? Right, Niger is a, an interesting place in the world. Most countries that would be predominantly Muslim, as as much of the population as ours, it would be much harder um, for people like myself to get a visa, to be there. Um, But it's a secular government. My visa says missionary. Uh, We're an established mission. And so we take that as just an open window to be as bold as possible. What that also means, though, is, is there cannot be governmental persecution, at least not overt. Um, so the government cannot force a group to stop meeting. They cannot imprison someone for their faith. So, so we don't see that. The persecution comes usually at the family level, at the community level. It's a being pushed outside of. Um, it's being shamed, which in an honor-shame culture is, is huge. So we have all kinds of our believers in our church, when, when they go back to their parents' um, villages, you know, no one will feed them. They can't use the utensils anyone else uses. Um, they're cast out as being family members, told you're no longer my son. Um, and so it, it's usually at the family and community level, not the upper government level, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, that does, because, you know, where other places, it's very much government down. Right. Um, you know, whether it's China, whether it's even other parts of the Middle East, it's, it's, it's a different, different persecution. Yeah. Okay. But, but still 
incredibly difficult. Yeah. I mean, and each of those would have their unique challenges. Um, and so again, with shame being such a big part of our culture with community being instilled in you from, from day one um, is the ultimate thing to be pushed outside of that. It's huge. Um, and it's hard and it's, mm. and it's tough, you know, as, as gospel shares to, to invite people into something that, you know, is going to make their life harder. Like one of our first discipleship lessons is a theology of suffering. Um, that this is going to be hard. This is going to be difficult. Is Christ going to be enough when they take your wife away, when they take your kids away from you, when you're kicked out of your village, when no one's feeding you, is Christ going to be sufficient? Wow. And, but those are like questions we all need to be able to answer. Yeah. Whether, whether we're in West Africa, whether we're here in the U S the question yeah. is of, is Christ sufficient? The, the answer of yes has is, is true wherever it's just very real there in terms of, of that question and, and that persecution. Absolutely. And, and yeah. And even real, you know, to us, I just was thinking my father, he, he passed away unexpectedly um, eight years ago and really miraculously I was able to be in the room when he when he took his last breath breath and you know there was many who thought man was was this worth it to not to not be there with him to miss Thanksgiving to miss Christmas to, to miss him bouncing his grandkids up and down on his knee to miss all those meals all that laughter while we were 6,000 miles away you know and the resounding answer, Eric, was yes, this was worth it because we have a hope that our time for feasting is not now. It's at the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? When we're gathered with brothers and sisters from every tribe, every tongue, every people. And so it's a question we have to ask ourselves. And it's what I would, you know, encourage and challenge the families that are listening to this to, to think through that. Is Christ enough for you to, to let your kids go to hard places when they come to you one day and say, I think God's calling me to Yemen? You know, will your response be, please don't go, please don't take my grandkids there, or will it be, yes, Christ is sufficient, you know, go. Yeah, and, and I, I love that, and it is a resounding yes, and, but those are questions we all, we all face and we all need to answer. Where you're at, or, or I'll say just because you are outside the U.S., what missionary needs do you see? Is it, do more people need to go? Is it, we just need to pray more? Do we need to give more? Is it some combination? What, what do you see as sort of, what's that need of, of support and going and sending that, that you see? Yeah, I mean, praying, giving, and going are all three very much needed, uh, more of, and and not just in a general sense, in a very specific way, I believe. So where we are, it's part of the, the 1040 window. You know, this is the highest concentration of lostness on the planet. It's where there's 3.2 billion people in those unreached categories with, with little to no access to the gospel. And so you have almost all of the world's unreached population in that window. And yet... For money that's given to missions, which is a lot, there's an average of $56 billion each year given to missions, only about 1.7% of those dollars end up 
with work in that 1040 window. And of all the missionaries in the world, of whom there, there's quite a few, only about 3% of them end up serving inside that window. And so there's a, definitely a need to, to pray, to give, and to go more. But there needs to be a higher concentration of that, a higher percentage of that going to some of these really hard places and the least reached places. Um, and so it's not just, you know, let's pray for more missionaries. Let's, let's pray for more missionaries to go to these specific places. Does that, does that make sense, Eric? It does. It does. Yeah, because that's that's where the great, I, I don't want to say the greatest, I say the greatest need, but we, you know, every human being needs a gospel. Every human being right. is lost, but like there is nothing there right? Like there is, yeah. when you say unreached, they have no access. We here in the, in the West, you know, we have so many resources and yet we have unbelievers driving by and that's a problem, but there's just nothing there. Yeah. And, and it's not to, to again, pit one against the other. We, we need missionaries and, and money and, and giving and praying everywhere, but we would just want to see a higher percentage going to the greatest areas of need in the sense of access. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that get, you know, I, I didn't realize those percentages were that, um, were that stark on, on the unreached and the 1040 window in terms of giving and going. Um, how can, how can families and people, I would say individuals, families, how can we cultivate just that that heart for missions? And what what can we do to sort of help our children see the importance of it? Yeah, I mean, no one drifts into discipline naturally, right? I don't I don't with my eating or my exercise. No, <laughs> um, and and you're not going to drift into that with your kids um, without a lot of intentional work, and so. I think that's the first thing is just to have some intentionality with the way you live and bringing your kids into that. Um, when we're here in the States and we'll go to Walmart, for example, you know, with the kids in my car, I'll often say, all right, guys, you know, we're here for, for toilet paper and Coke, but we might be here for a bigger reason than that. Let's just pray and ask God to give us eyes to see, even while we're shopping for these things that we need. Let's just let's just pray that God would give us eyes to see if there's someone we can help or someone we could pray for. And so I'm just trying to put a little seed in my kid's life for them to see everything I'm doing. It's not random. I'm trying to bring intentionality to that. Um, intentionally trying to find internationals in your community um, that you can serve, that you can offer assistance if they're having trouble navigating or even with English, you know, it's trying to bring people into your home and letting your kids see that our home is a place that we bring people into and we share and we eat together and we fellowship together. Um, being intentional with, with, uh, praying for missionaries, um, again, having your family devotional time, making sure you're, you're talking about the needs of the world, um, uh, making sure that you're praying specifically for places and people. Um, I think those would be great things to cultivate, um, as a family. Well, and then, so let's, let's talk about, about the prayer, uh, part of that. How, how can we pray? For, for missions work, for, for the growth of the gospel in these hard places, you know, what should we pray? How do we do that? For people listening going, 
Okay, that sounds like a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, now, now. Uh, okay. What's the first step? <laughs> yeah. For for global awareness, you know, there's great resources out there like Operation World that will take you through every country and and give you some specific prayer requests. There's great resources like Joshua's Project where you can see the largest unreached peoples. So those would be good to familiarize yourself with some of the global needs. But then, you know, what I would challenge people to do is, is to just look at those prayers in the New Testament, the way Paul asked for people to pray for him. Um, so just just thinking of Colossians, you know, praying for open doors, pray that, that God would open doors for ministry to go forward um, in uh, Ephesians for that they would be bold. The missionaries would be bold. They wouldn't shrink back. Um, thinking of Second Thessalonians. Um, Paul Wright said the word would spread um, and even prays for protection. So, you know, praying specifically for God to protect workers and indigenous believers. Um, and then I would say uh, a prayer for missionaries would be that they would watch their doctrine and watch their life. Uh, what Paul encourages Timothy, that many missionaries, just like many pastors and believers there in the States, um, have made a shipwreck of their faith and their ministry through moral failure or for doctrinal compromise and missionaries face those same temptations every day as well. And so that they would, would watch their doctrine and watch their life. So all that's just to say, you know, find those new Testament prayers and just pray those for missionaries and for missions. I love that. I do. And those are, those are great open doors, boldness, not shrinking back uh, protection. And that last one, the missionaries, that they would watch their doctrine. I think sometimes we, that's that's not something I think a lot of believers think about praying for. Yeah. Um, you know, because I think it, because that that seems sometimes seems like a foreign word, but it makes sense because it, it with it seems like without a close group of believers to help you walk, it could be really easy to veer off yeah. track. Absolutely. So families who listen to this, um, any key takeaway that you want to leave them with in terms of uh, in terms of missions, in terms of the work that's out there, anything you'd like to leave them with? Yeah, I've got a couple of things if I can. Um, you know, our process, and as I mentioned at the very beginning of this, how we got to the field was the ordinary means of understanding God's heart for the nations through his word and understanding the reality of global lostness. Um, and so having opportunities to share that with your kids through, again, your family devotions or through um, however you're, you're discipling your children, you know, helping them see the, the main storyline of scripture, that this isn't just, you know, unconnected stories of, of heroes and saints, but it's the story of a missionary God creating for himself a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and just drawing that out of scripture for them and then exposing them through, like I said, Operation World or Joshua's Project, exposing them to the needs that, guys, there's just places in the world where there's no churches, where there's there's no Christians. And just as they're little children, hearing that and getting a big worldview and a biblical worldview, I think that's key. And then the, the other thing I would say is, is get to know some missionaries personally, whether that's someone your church supports, um, someone you have a connection to, you know, find ways to get to know them when they're in the States, have them in your home, um, write them cards, communicate with them, encourage them. Um, I think those would be great next steps for, for any family to take. Excellent. Well, 
And, and that, I mean, that helps me. That will help uh, everybody listening uh, to really start. It, it gives them some action steps, you know, they, as they can start putting this into uh, into effect. And so just as we wrap up, if people listening, they're like, hey, I want to know more about what you guys are doing with Access Ministries, whether it's just to learn more, whether it's to contribute, um, where would you like them to go? Yeah, the easiest place would be to, to go to our landing page, and we can put this maybe in the show notes, but it would be absolutely the ssmfi.org, and then you would search for our name or our number, which is 6351. Um, but we'll put that hopefully in the show notes and people can mm-hmm. link there. Absolutely, we will. And so we will uh, we will put that uh, web address, uh, the number and the name in the show notes. So if you would like to get more information uh, and find out what uh, Mark and his family are doing, definitely check it out. Um, again, I can't, you know, if you're listening, the Lord is at work. And so being uh, being able to, you know, be a, a part of that um, is, is powerful. So I would encourage you to do it. So Mark, man, this has been awesome. This has been a wonderful yeah. conversation, man. Um, just, just being able to chat and share. Thanks. Thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time. Cause I know your stateside schedule is, is busy. We'll just call it that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is wonderful. Thank you so much, Eric. It's been a, a real treat. If you found this episode helpful, please leave a review for us wherever you listen to podcasts. Doing so will help others to find us. Uh, Check out the show notes for resource information. We encourage you to do that for links and other references. We'd like to hear from you so you can message us your questions or comments on Facebook, Instagram, and Entrusting the Faith. You can email us at info at entrustingthefaith.com. If you go to our website, which is www.entrustingthefaith.com, you can sign up to our email list and receive free resources as well as upcoming podcast episode information. So check it out. Lastly, just remember, legacies are built a day at a time. So start now.